So I don't know about you, but I don't watch the TV series casually. It may well have changed over the years, but uh, I never even dare to go on it now after the first number of episodes that I watch, and it's really for two reasons. One is because I can't stand the sight of blood, and the other reason is because whenever you see a new actor appear at the start of Casualty that you've never seen before going about their daily business, you know that within a few minutes they're going to be caught up in some terrible medical emergency. And uh, I always feel terribly sorry for a new actor that walks onto the set at the start of Casualty. Gladly, there's that sense of promise, and certainly there was in the initial stages of Casualty, that as the episode progressed, there was this sort of promise that things were going to work out well. Generally, things were going to be good. Similarly, the Bible starts off with this picture of everything as it should be. There's God's people, Adam and Eve, in God's place, the Garden of Eden, and they're under the protection and the rule and the blessing of God. And then so quickly, just quite early in the story in Genesis chapter 3, that perfect situation of the rule and reign, the kingdom of God, just vanishes. It vanishes because Human beings decide that they do want God's rule on earth. They want human rule on earth. They want to dictate their own circumstances, their own destiny, and so they, they turn their back on God and decide to go their own way. And in this rebellion, in this fall, everything comes crashing down. All the consequences that the serpent in the garden said that wouldn't come true, that death wouldn't come, starts to unfold. And for the first time, as we read about the story of the human beings in the Bible, we hear for the first time that there is death, and we hear name after name of generation that departs because the serpent was lying, because death did come whenever Adam and Eve decided to disobey God. Thankfully, that's not the end of the story because God has an eternal plan, and it is to restore everything through His Son, Jesus Christ, to come Himself in the flesh, God among us, the Word of God incarnate, to restore everything, and to restore everything under God's good rule, so that we as God's people would be in God's place under God's protection and enjoying God's blessing. We may well wonder, well, how did God or why did God allow this to happen if He had this rescue plan from before creation actually happened? Why did God let the fall happen in the first place? The Bible gives no answer to that question. It only answers what we need to know, that God is still in control, that one day the awful consequences of our rebellion will be overturned. Justice will be done mercy will be evident. The power of sin and the resultant penalty of death hanging over every human being has the opportunity to be lifted through Jesus Christ. And so as Christians, we have that refrain that we believe all will be well, and all will be well, and all manner of things will be well, even in the face of sickness and death, even in the face of seemingly impossible situations, we believe that in the end all will be well. At the heart of His rescue plan for us, 
there is God's promise. The Bible is all about God's promises to us. These promises are wrapped up in covenants and God saying that this rescue plan that He has for us is by Him fulfilling His Word and in calling us to be those who live in obedience to Him and therefore live under His blessing and protection. Even the Bible itself is marked out in two covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Testament is just a new word or a, a different word for covenant. And so the Bible in its entirety is all about God making His promises to us, which He says will be fulfilled, because the Word of the Lord will always come to fruition. Some of those covenants are unconditional. God says, this is what's going to happen, and it happens. Some are bilateral, they're conditional. God makes a determined promise, and He calls us to respond in like, and the outcome is only assured if both sides of the party keep their side of the bargain. And so, in the Old Testament, we see again and again how the covenants of God are put forward, and some of them, like to Noah and Abraham initially, are covenants which are unconditional. And so, after the flood, which was a near complete reversal of creation due to human depravity, God makes a unilateral, an unconditional covenant to preserve creation and never again to destroy it by a flood. And with every covenant in the Bible, there's bloodshed and there is a sign. In the case of Noah, the sign is the sign of the rainbow, the sign that God will never again destroy the entire earth with flood. Then there's a covenant to Abram we heard it repeated this morning in Genesis chapter 17. God promises to raise up a nation from Abram's descendants and to give them a land to live in. He will bless them, and He will bless the whole earth through them. And the sign of that covenant is circumcision. Then there's the covenant to Moses. God promises the Israelites that they will be His special people, in turn, they are to obey the commandments that He gives them, commandments that will safeguard them and will help them to flourish. Don't kill. Don't lie. Obey your father and mother. Take a day of rest every week. They're commandments which are obviously made for our good. And the sign of that covenant is the Sabbath the sign that we're willing to trust God that even while we rest, He does good things. Of course, we know that throughout the Old Testament, there was this sense again and again that human beings, we could not live up to our side of the bargain again and again. We feel there's a waxing and a waning, but ultimately we realize that human beings are not doing well in fulfilling our side of the bargain. And so the prophets throughout the Old Testament begin, as they are inspired by God's Holy Spirit, begin to point to the fact that there's a new deal coming, there's a new covenant, there's a new testament coming, and they begin by the inspiration of God to paint a picture as to what this will look like. 
It's one in which God will actually do a brand new thing, that he will change hearts of stone to hearts of flesh, that every human being will be, as they respond to Christ, will be taught directly by God's Holy Spirit. There'll be no need for a human mediator other than one, God in the flesh. The sign of that covenant is baptism, and the blood that was shed on this occasion is the blood of Jesus Christ. All these covenants are distinct, and yet they're caught up in the overall story of how God tells us in the Bible He is going to make all things well. He's going to make all things well by His initiative, by showing His love for us, but encouraging us to take up our God-given responsibility to make decisions of good and ill based on His Word and based and strengthened by the power of His Holy Spirit. And so amazingly, God comes and speaks to a, a man in the Middle East called Abram. There's no church, there's no synagogue, there's no Bible. Abram has very little to go on in terms of understanding who is God. And yet somehow in the middle of the whispers of the desert, surrounded by his sheep and camels and the people around him, he hears the whisper of God's voice. A whisper that tells him to do something very radical. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land that I will show you. He doesn't even tell him where he's going. But nonetheless, he asks him to trust this developing relationship that he has with God, this invisible God, this whispering voice. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And so we can see here that the aspects of that initial picture of harmony and perfection at the start of the Bible of God's people in God's place under God's blessing is being reinstated by God. And so as God speaks to Abram, he speaks into those three areas. He speaks about people, he speaks about land, and he speaks about blessing. In other words, he's speaking about restoration of all that has been lost. And so God says to him, I will establish my covenant, an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you. In other words, I am fulfilling my promise. I am establishing my covenant it is an everlasting covenant. It is an unbreakable covenant. My word is true. It will be fulfilled for you and your descendants after you. It's the beginning of that refrain that happens again and again throughout the Old Testament. I will be your God, and you will be my people. The amazing thing, of course, is the fact that at this point, well, the point of calling Abram is 75 years old, by the time the covenant is refreshed, 
He is 100 years old. His wife is 99. He has no offspring. He is not a father. And amazingly, God changed his name and says to him, no longer will you be called Abram, which means exalted father. You will be called father of many. Imagine at the age of 100 having such faith that you ask people to start calling you by a different name, Abraham, the father of multitudes, and yet you have no children, and you're 100 years old. God says to Abraham, there's a land that I'm going to give to you. There's a land that I'm promising you, the promised land, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner. He's traveling through. He's left home with Lot and his wife, Sarah, Lot's his nephew. He is traveling through Canaan, and God says to him as he renews his promise to him, because Abram has got up and he has gone. He has done what the Lord has commanded him to do. He's moving within the covenant. He is moving in response to the invisible God. And God says to him, where you now reside as a foreigner, where you've pitched a tent in this place of transience, I will make an everlasting possession for you and your descendants. I will give them this land, and they, and I will be your God, and I will be their God. And finally, as well as the promise of people and descendants, there's the promise of land, and there's the promise of blessing. God says that Abram's descendants will be a blessing. All peoples on earth will be blessed. There will be kings that come from you. The curse of the fall will be replaced by the blessing of rescue. It will be for all nations if you're willing to live under my blessing, if you're willing to trust that I'm promising you a people, I'm promising you land, and I'm promising you a blessing. Amazingly, at the initial stages, as Abraham travels through the land, he only has a sense that there is blessing from God. In many ways, he's thriving. He has lots of flocks and herds, and that he still has no children, and he still has no land. But Abraham believes that God's word is true. It's only a whispered word. It's one he takes completely on faith. In terms of evidence, he has very little to go on. But he trusts the fact that this unseen God will be true to his word. Paul says this in Romans 4, Therefore the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace, and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, in other words, Jews, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham, the Gentiles. Not only because he is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you, Abraham, a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God, in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. The fact that we are 
children of Abraham, the fact that we are those who are among those who have the faith of Abraham, reminds us of the fact that all of this, as Paul says, is by grace. It's purely by believing that God is a good God, and that all that God does and all that He fulfills is not because we are good, it's because He is good. Abraham is not described in any way as a good man. We're told no virtues. We're not told that he's kind or generous. But we're told that God is good and that Abraham believes that God is good. And everything flows from that. It's so important for us as children of Abraham, as followers of Jesus Christ, to remember that everything, this rescue plan of God, is by grace alone through faith alone. It is not based in any way on our goodness, and that's why it's a universal gift. It's based purely in believing that God is a good God. So Abraham trusted God's promises. Jesus then, on the Sermon on the Mount, stands up, Matthew chapter 5, and says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, to the Jewish ear, to the Jewish listener, they would have understood something very significant here. This isn't just God promising a country in the Middle East. This is about God promising the whole earth to those who are willing to be meek. In other words, those who are willing to submit to God, to submit to His covenant, to trust that God is a good God. And that goodness ultimately is shown to us through the one who speaks those words, Jesus. The one who comes to bring in a new covenant which has been foretold for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's a covenant that will transform the human heart. As with all covenants, it will begin with the initiative of God. As with all covenants, there will be a shedding of blood. As with all covenants, there will be a sign. And the sign is to remind us primarily that God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. The sign of the new covenant is baptism. The sign of the new covenant is to remind us that God is good. And so Paul says about Abraham, against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, so became the father of many nations. And just as it has been said to him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead. Since he was a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but strengthened in his faith, he gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. And this is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words, it was credited to him, were written not for him alone, but also for us 
to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him and who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead and who was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. And so in this new covenant, this Christian faith, this restoration of God's rule and reign on earth, we are asked, like Abraham, to trust not in our own goodness, but in the goodness of God. Ultimately, as those who follow Jesus Christ, our belief is that God is good, that God is generous, that God is full of grace, and that that's enough that our eternal destiny is not based on our goodness, it's based on all that He has done in Jesus Christ. And so are you willing to trust that God is good? Are you willing to trust your eternal destiny in this new covenant of Jesus shedding His blood and us trusting that that is the ultimate sign that we are deeply loved by God, our Creator? And are we willing to listen to what God is saying to us, speaking to us? Because if we believe in this covenant, if we believe that God is a God who makes promises and keeps them, then what promises is He making to you? What is He saying to you in the whispers? Are you willing to stop and listen? Are you willing to stop and read Scripture to pray? to be silent and to reflect, and to know that not only is He speaking to us as church and as human beings, the overarching glory of this new covenant in Jesus Christ, but He also speaks truth and promises into each of our lives. He plants dreams into our hearts, and then He calls us to be the people that make those dreams come true. You see, in these covenants that God whispers to us, in these eternal destinies that He causes dreams to rise up about within us, there is also our side of the bargain. Are we willing to submit completely to Him? Are we willing to become, by the power of His Holy Spirit, the people whom He's called us to be? Are we willing to turn our back and walk away from everything that would detract from our lives with God and to keep turning towards Him and keep pursuing this glorious relationship in Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit? Do we trust and believe that Christ, having cleaned us, has also come to dwell in us? That Christ lives in us the hope of glory that we have actually become the righteousness of God. That when we're baptized and trust in the mercy of God, we become those whom God sets up His temple within. We become ambassadors for Christ. We become the righteousness of God. Undoubtedly in this, there are always obstacles God never calls us to something which would be easy. Ultimately, He calls us to something which will give glory to Him. But as with Abraham, He will always cause, call us to something 
that looks utterly impossible. For Abram, it was the promise of being a, a father of multitudes, of kings and nations, and yet he had no children, and it didn't look as if he was going to have any. He would be the, his, his descendants would inherit the land, and yet he didn't have one square foot of earth to even build a home on. What are the obstacles that God has placed in your path that with you he wants to overcome? There will always be obstacles. Obstacles that are outside us and obstacles that are also within us. But God does this so that his glory will be revealed, that we will give glory to him and we will know it has not been of our own making that he has brought this dream to fulfillment. Those obstacles within us or around us may be a perceived lack of opportunity, of time, of resources, of confidence, of skills, of health, or of character. There will always be a sense of lack in fulfilling and pursuing the will of God. But God is always in the, in the business of painting a new future, a new future for every single human being. Together we trust in the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. God calls us into realities and into stories with the things that we foresee as yet do not even exist. Are you willing to step into that new story that God has for you? One in which you will have a new spiritual name. One that represents the person that he created you to be. So that you, through you and through us together, he will bless many others. See, that's always his intention. God is a God who's a, a multiplier. He's a God who scatters seed and expects a hundredfold harvest. He's a God who blesses us so that many, many others will be blessed. This is how the kingdom of God works. God is good all the time, and all the time God is good. Let us pray.